guys are here. Uh, welcome to whoever's watching on the live stream. I'm glad that you're here as well. If you guys could do me a favor, I forget to do this every, um, every Sunday, I forget to say this. Could you fill out the guest registers at the end of the aisle and pass those down so that the people next to you can fill them out as well? I would very much appreciate that. And if you're visiting, uh, leave me your address or some way to contact you. I'd like to get to know you better. Let me run through just a couple things here real quick. Um, first of all, schedule-wise, new members class starts next Sunday, and I almost hate to call that a new, uh, I almost hate to call that a new members class because it's really for everybody. It's for anybody who wants to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, we go through the story of the Bible from beginning to end. We do not read the whole Bible, of course, but we go through the story of the Bible from beginning to end and talk about how our lives fit into that story and how it controls what we th- how it should control what we think and say and do and how that whole story revolves around Jesus. It's also, that is, I mean, I call it the new members class because it is the ordinary way that if you're interested in joining the church, you would go through that class to do that. Anybody's welcome to come, though. It's a lot of fun. I think it's a lot of fun. People who go through it tell me that it's a lot of fun. Next Sunday, we're going to start that at 6.30 in the evening. It's going to go from 6.30 to 8. Child care is provided, so if you've got kids, uh, feel free to bring them. Also, along with that, next Sunday, we're going to start the next round of youth confirmation classes. That'll be after Bible study, so we'll have church, and then we'll have Bible study, 10-minute break, and then we'll do an hour of youth confirmation class with um, whichever of your kids want to show up. If you are, well, let me give you the uh, kind of what uh, your kids are eligible if. They are, they want to be Christians. They want to take communion. They're old enough to basically understand the story of the Bible and who Jesus is and who we are and what's wrong and what's the solution. If they're old enough to sit there and talk and listen for an hour, and really that's up to you parents, then they are more than welcome to come to the confirmation class and prepare for communion. This is not, like in some uh, churches, this is not an age thing. This is not a junior high thing. Uh, We've had kids as young as fourth grade uh, come in there, and uh, that is totally fine if it's fine with you parents. After the service today, we're going to have a brief meeting right up here for anybody who's interested, uh, parents and kids. If you're interested, or grandparents, if you've got kids who you're interested in being involved in that, we're going to meet right up here briefly after the service so I can figure out who you are, and then... um, I kind of need to know how many are going to be there so I can order uh, uh, some of the materials for that too. So that'll be right after that, uh, right afterwards. A couple more things real quick. Um, uh, After service today is a Bible study, and I told you this last week, I'll keep on mentioning this. We we don't have time to dig into everything in the book of Revelation up here during the sermon. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to try to give you a big, broad overview during the sermon, and then downstairs we're going to dig into some of the details. Now, last week, uh, for those of you who were there, we less looked at the text and more uh, talked about what our experiences uh, together of Revelation have been. Uh, if you've ever been familiar with the book of Revelation, we talked about that. Today, we're going to dig into uh, chapter one a little bit and look at some of the imagery there and what it means in chapter two as well, which uh, that'll be the sermon text for this morning. So please come downstairs afterwards and join us for Bible study. Okay. Uh, let's see here. One more thing. Uh, I told you, you remember about a month ago, uh, uh, Jack and Happy, two of our college students preparing for a mission trip coming up this summer, um, gave you a little presentation and I told you that we were going to have an offering for them. And then over uh, the date that I said we were going to have it was over Christmas holiday and everybody was gone. And I thought that would be real unfortunate if we 
uh, I should have thought of that before I said that. If we took up the offering when everybody was uh, traveling and some of you were sick. So what we're going to do is next Sunday, we're going to take up a door offering after the service. That's going to go to, we're going to split it and half of it will go to Jack. Jack's going to lead a mission trip to Hungary this year. And then Happy's going to Costa Rica, I believe. And uh, we'll split that up and send that to the organization that they're doing those trips from. Okay. Uh, That's all that I think I have. Let's go ahead and stand and sing the opening hymn together.
continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God our Father. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. We pour out our souls to you because by our own efforts we have failed. Nothing we have tried has worked. We have tried again and again, and still we have failed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. Save us from the embarrassment of our failure. Save us from envying those who have apparently succeeded. Grant us some signs of success that we not always be ashamed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. You know our need. You know our struggles, our brokenness, our sins. You know that without your mercy, we can do nothing. Grant us mercy for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Psalm for this morning is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus birth we pray 
Old Testament reading for today is from uh, Isaiah 42. This is one of the four servant songs that are in Isaiah 40 to 55, this vision that Isaiah has of this coming servant who's going to rescue the world. Here's what God says in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. He's talking to Jesus now. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's some, uh, some overlap between the Isaiah reading and what we're doing in Revelation is this emphasis in Isaiah, all through Isaiah 40 to 55, here in the servant song that comes out, servant song here, it comes out that God's goal is to rescue the nations. God's goal is not to take individuals to heaven when they die. God's goal is to conquer the entire world. This comes out frequently in here. Verse four, he won't be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Uh, He gives breath to the people. Uh, Let's see here. Um, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, verse six. Um, Anyway, that's good stuff. Revelation two, this is the sermon text for today. Uh, We did Revelation last week. Revelation two and three is a letter from John to seven churches that were kind of in, all in the same area in Asia Minor, what's, what's currently Turkey. Uh, chapter three has three of them. Chapter four, uh, two today has, we'll look at four of these churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. You guys will remember who were here last week. That's talking about Jesus. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. 
Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who is killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as, with an er as, with, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 3. Glory to you, O Lord. So this is, uh, this is the, the Sunday in the church here when we uh, celebrate the baptism of Jesus. I, I made a mistake. The front of the bulletin cover says the second Sunday after Christmas. It's actually supposed to say the baptism of Jesus. This is what this reading is about here. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, life everlasting. Amen. Please stay standing for the sermon hymn. turn in your Bibles to Revelation 2 or look back in the bulletin to the, um, the reading of Revelation 2. Um, I'm going to keep pointing you back. Uh, what we did last week in uh, Revelation 1, uh, actually in, in more, it was uh, talking about apocalyptic and the way the book of Revelation works. If you weren't here for that, you're going to need to go back and uh, listen to that at some point. Uh, for today, let me just say this. What Revelation is doing it's answering the question, if Jesus is Lord of the universe, why is the church so lousy? Like, what's, why is the church so weak? 
why has the church not made all the successes that it looks like it was going to make in the book of Acts? The book of Revelation answers that question by saying the sphere of our lives, call it earth if you want to, and the sphere of what God is doing in his realm actually intersect. And what's happening now here, if you could just peel back the curtain and see God at work, you would see there's a lot of big cosmic things going on. That's what Revelation does, is it peels back the curtain and shows you the big, bold fight, the victory of God that's going on behind the scenes while we're kind of muddling around here, singing out of tune, and uh, you know we got kind of, uh, some of us have not very nice looking clothes and that sort of stuff, and uh, got bad attitudes, and uh, even worse, we sin a lot, and um, the culture uh, looks down on us, all these sorts of things. What's happening behind the scenes is big and bold and beautiful. Now, I, I, I can't remember if I said this in the sermon last week or if we talked about this in Bible study. But a really good example of apocalyptic is there's this story in the book of Kings where um, Elijah is with his servant and they're, they're being, there's the city that they're in is surrounded by this foreign army and the servant is freaking out like we're, we're all gonna get blown up. And Elijah prays to God and says, God, open his eyes. And all of a sudden the servant can see that around this foreign army that's surrounding them is this big powerful army of the Lord that's surrounding the foreign army which is surrounding them. And all of a sudden he's got confidence. God has this under control. That's what the book of Revelation is doing. That's a good example of apocalyptic. It's not, it's not predicting the future. It's saying that right now, while we're muddling around in this world, God is active and he's at work and his kingdom is growing and he is winning the victory. Okay, in light of that, before we get into the, that view, before we pull back the curtain, starting in Revelation 4 going forward and seeing what God is up to on, you know, on, on the heavenly realm, John gives us, us a view of what church life is like in the 90s AD. And it looks strikingly familiar to what church life looks like now. And what one of the things John is doing is saying, this is just ordinary. The church has always been weak. The church has always struggled. But it doesn't change the fact that Jesus has always been winning and will win. So we're gonna look at chapter two this week, these four churches, and then chapter three next week. And a lot of this is gonna look familiar to us. And my main point at the end of this week and next week as well is going to be Jesus is still winning. It doesn't look like Jesus is winning, but Jesus is still winning. So let's look at the church in Revelation chapter two and um, think about what's wrong with the church here and then what is right with the church. These two ways we can look at it, what's wrong with the church and what's right with the church. So, and again, I'm not gonna get into all the details. There's gonna be some stuff in here that you're gonna be like, what, is, what the heck's up with the hidden manna and the white stone that he's giving them? Not talking about it in here. I'll talk about it downstairs. Uh, just don't have time. It's not that I'm trying to hide anything from you. It's just we don't have time to do it. This has got to be as general as possible. What's wrong with the church of the first century? First of all, she's attacked from the outside and she attacks herself from the inside, these two things. Let's look at how she's attacked from the outside. Look at verse nine and 10. Uh, Paul, uh, John says to the church at uh, Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto the death and I will give you the crown of life. 
So here's this group. It's, it's, it's a religious group. He, calls, he says that they, they, they think that they're Jews. They say that they're Jews, but they're actually the synagogue of Satan. Now, what you have to understand is, uh, in, in the first century, Christians worshipped in synagogues. This is, where, this is what they would do. They, they also had churches, but in the book of Acts, you see Paul frequently going into synagogues because Paul's a Jew, because the message of the Messiah is a Jewish message. There isn't the hard and fast distinction between Jew and Christian that we would have today. And what John is saying is, is that there are these people here who have kicked you out of the synagogue, have reported you to the Roman authorities, probably, this is, this, we, knew this, we know this happened in the first century. See, see uh, um, the Jews had certain legal protections in the first century AD that a lot of other people didn't have. For instance, nobody was allowed to like, just take a day off in the middle of the week. Jews were allowed, the Roman government realized, we've got a ton of Jews here in the empire, we need to make some concessions to them. Uh, we will let them have Saturdays off. Uh, we will not force them to serve in the army if they pay like a, a reparative tax to, to cover for that. There were certain advantages that they had. Once, once Jews who did not believe in Jesus Messiah saw that they were not gonna get rid of these other Jews who did believe in Jesus Messiah, they started to tell the Roman government these people aren't actually with us. And as a result, persecution happened. Well, uh, Christians were starting to get persecuted. And this is what he's referring to here. Religious persecution. People, persecution that the church receives from other religious groups, sometimes, like here, like brothers in the faith, like uh, you know, the, the, uh, brothers is the wrong word, cousins in the faith maybe, if you'd like. Uh, people who should be on your side uh, opposed to you. So attacked by uh, uh, attacked by religious groups. Verse 13, look at verse 13. Uh, this is uh, to the church at Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Okay, so there's two references there to Satan dwells here, and you didn't deny my name even when you were being attacked by whatever this means, Satan dwelling. Well, um, a little bit of this is conjecture, I know, but, in the, so, but, but uh, many scholars see t in this reference, in the book of Revelation, Satan is pictured as a, as a big serpent. We're gonna see that later on in a few weeks. In, in, the, in the vivid imagery of Revelation, Satan is a, a great serpent or a great dragon. Um, Pergamum is the center of the uh, Asclepius. Um, there was a, a huge Asclepius shrine. Asclepius was a big snake god that was said to have the gift of healing. In fact, I hesitate to say this because uh, I don't want anybody to draw false comparisons. But that's when, when you see like the, the emblem that doctors have on the staff with the snake, that's, that's Asclepius. Uh, the, the, John is not saying that doctors are bad. He's saying that people that worship at the, at the god Asclepius' shrine as a way of saying, we'll worship you, we'll burn incense to you, and uh, then you heal us, that that's false worship. That's what John is saying. The, you doctors in here, you're not, this is, this is not cover you here, this condemnation of being uh, the seed of Satan. But he's saying here, so, so uh, what's happening is this. We also know this about Pergamum, and I, I mentioned this last week, is that Pergamum is one of the five cities that John writes to that have temples or shrines devoted to uh, emperor worship, the, 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 the worship of the emperor Domitian. If you are a good citizen of the Roman Empire, you were expected to do a couple things. One, like I said last week, was to, to go and worship at the shrine of the Roman emperor. At least once a year, you would be issued, I don't, I don't think I mentioned this, although I think I've said this before, you would be issued a card, a paper card, 
which said, I've done my yearly duty. I've gone and I've pinched the incense to uh, Domitian and I've said, Domitian is Lord and now I can go about my business. You, were, you would also probably go to uh, a shrine devoted to whatever local trade guild you were involved in. So shoemakers would have a shrine devoted to the patron god or goddess of shoemaking and a part of your duties as being a member of that guild or that union would be to go there and to worship that. And so if you didn't, if you didn't go to your local trade guild or if you didn't go to the Asclepius Shrine, which was very, very important to the city of Pergamum, or if you didn't go to the Domitian Temple, the Temple to Caesar, it's not just, you would have been seen as um, a bad citizen. You weren't playing ball with everybody else. You weren't being a part of the whole community, which was gathering together and uniting to be a good city. And you were separating yourself from that. You were an outsider. And definitely, a lot of Christians, and we know from, uh, from Pliny the Elder that a lot of Christians actually caved in and said, I can't do this. I can't be an oddball. I'm just gonna go, and I'm just gonna pinch the incense and give it to Caesar. I'm just gonna go to the Asclepius Shrine, and I'm just gonna fake it, and, you know, I don't know, pray for forgiveness afterwards. Pliny says a lot of people actually just abandoned their Christian faith altogether. It was just too hard. It was too hard. Well, this is, this is actually normal. And I, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's ratcheted up a level here. But if you go back to the past 2,000 years, there's not been any time in the past 2,000 years when the world has not disliked, has not liked Christianity being genuinely Christian. Now, the Christian church frequently will tone down its message in certain areas in order to fit in. But when the Christian church is being the Christian church, it is very much looked down on by the economic system. And there's lots of, there's a, there's lots of examples of this. I can give you examples from now. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one. The porn industry does not like it when people say that porn is an epidemic because there's so much money to be made with porn. And if the church stands up for sexual purity, the economic system is going to bear their guns against it. But if the church says, which the church frequently does, hey, I personally, I think sexual purity is important, but, but who am I to tell other people how to live their lives? They'll leave you alone. That's just the amount of incense that you need to pension offer to Caesar to be left alone. But if the church is the church and says, no, this is a drug, porn is a drug, and it's killing families, it's killing people, it's destroying people psychologically and physically, the culture, the economic system is going to bear its guns on the Christian church. Same thing culturally, same thing religiously. If the Christian church is the Christian church, there are large swaths of the Christian church that are gonna turn on the real Christian church. The political system as well. As long as you play nice and you are a faithful member, subservient to whatever party you belong to, they'll let you be the Christian church. But as soon as you stand up and say both political parties, God sits in judgment in certain areas on both those parties, they're gonna bear their guns at you and turn against you. The Christian church has always faced this. We as Americans, we just got really, really good at playing ball with the culture, of assimilating. And when we choose not to, then we're kind of freaked out because of the, the outside pressure. Well, all John is saying here is, don't freak out about the outside pressure. Stay faithful. You're gonna be tested for 10 days. I'm not gonna tell you what that 10 days means. I will tell you downstairs if you're super interested. Uh, so, uh, that's really cheap. That's kind of a... Uh, that was cheap. I apologize. I, I don't have time to tell you. That's what it is. But come downstairs and we'll talk about it later. But if you stay faithful, you'll be a part of this victory of God in Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, uh, she's also attacked from the inside. 
Uh, she's detected from the outside by the culture, by, by the political system, by the social order, by the economic order, by the religious order. The Christian church is also frequently attacking herself. She's also attacked from the inside. And now I'm going to give you here uh, two things from this text. One is a liberal church tendency, and, a, and then the other is a conservative church tendency. I think the, liberals, the, the, the labels liberal and conservative are unfortunate, but you'll know what I mean when we get here. So first of all, sexual sin is a problem in the Christian church in the first century. It's a problem in the Christian church today. Look at verse 14 and 15. I have a few things against you, John says to the church at Pergamum. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Um, Balaam, Numbers 22. Go, go back sometime this week and read Numbers 22 in the Old Testament. Balak, the king of Moab, hires the prophet Balaam to curse the people of Israel who he's scared of. Balaam goes to curse them, and then he's like, wait a minute, I'm trying, but I can't. I open my mouth to curse Israel, but Yahweh won't let me. Instead, whatever comes out of my mouth ends up blessing Israel. Uh, Balak tries three times. He's like, I'm giving you a ton of money, buddy, to curse this people. And finally, Balaam's like, I can't do it. I can't, my, God won't let me say anything bad about them. But here's what I can do, Numbers 25. I can introduce them to Baal worship. And trust me, they're gonna love Baal worship. It's gonna weaken them and then you can conquer them. And what Baal worship is this. Baal, Baal is a Phoenician god. Baal is a fertility god. Baal says, if you wanna worship me, the way to do it is to come to my temples. I'll have sexual, I'll have a, a sacred prostitutes here, male and female. You can have sex with whoever you want to. That's how you worship me. If you do that, I will give uh, wives, I will give you babies. Husbands, I'll give your wives babies. I'll make your crops grow. But you have to come here and have sex. Numbers 25, Israel's like, that's the religion for me. I want free sex. That's how I want to worship. From then on, throughout the rest of Scripture, that's the bugaboo in Israel's worship life, is this syncretism. They want to be faithful to Yahweh, to the one true God, uh, but they just can't get away from Baal worship. It's too much fun. They're imprisoned by this. And what John is saying is, is you got some of that going on here. You guys are a Christian church. You believe in Jesus. You live in a pagan context, though there are lots of, lots of temples around where you can go and worship. There are lots of sacred prostitutes. And some of you think that you can do both, that you can be a Christian and be sexually immoral at the same time. And I'm just telling you, you can't. Verse 20, let's, here's another example down here. Uh, but I have this against you, he says to the church in Thyatira, you, you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So this is a per somebody in the Christian church or a group of people, we don't know if it's like a specific person. Almost certainly this person's name is not Jezebel. Or if it's a group, their name is not Jezebel. It's a nickname that John gives them. Why? Because back in Kings, Jezebel was the Phoenician queen who married King Ahab who is responsible for bringing in Baal worship wholesale. So where before Jezebel and Ahab, um, uh, uh, Baal worship was kind of like people dabbled in it. She comes in and she says, no, from now on, you can worship Yahweh, but we're gonna give equal time to Baal and his female consort, Asherah. So go to the temple, offer sacrifices at Passover, but everybody needs to go to the Baal temples and have sex with the sacred prostitutes. Well, she was kind of in bed uh, monetarily with, with uh um, uh, with, with the Baal cult. And so John, again, is using this language from the Old Testament to say, you guys, you, you want to be Christians, you're in the Christian church, but you also want to bring in your sexual immorality. Honestly, I mean, I know, I know that there are no literal buildings that are 
temples where you can go and worship sacred prostitutes, have sex with sacred prostitutes now. The Christian church struggles just as much with sexual immorality now as it did then. It's no different. If I talk about porn use in here, a majority of you will know that I'm talking about you. A majority. I mean, that's just the stats. A majority will. Lots of you in here are having sex outside of marriage. And what, what you, maybe you're having an affair, maybe you're married and having an affair. Maybe you're not married, but you're having sex outside of marriage with somebody, or you're sleeping around, you're hooking up, whatever. You also are Christians, and you want to be faithful to Jesus, and you're trying to worship at the altar of Jesus, and you're trying to worship at the altar of the sexual revolution at the same time. And Jesus is telling, so I could do a couple things here. One, I could give you like the, the uh, uh, well, let me just say this. Sex is a good thing. John is not bashing sex because he thinks it's a, a bad thing. John is bashing what they're doing because he knows that sex is a beautiful, good thing. That God created sex for you to enjoy because it models and manifests the interpersonal commitment that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have. If you don't know what that last phrase means, come to the new members class next Sunday. It's one of the first things we talk about. Or do premarital counseling with me, and we can talk about it there. Sex within marriage was designed by God, Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh, to model the love that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have for each other, which is incredibly committed to each other. It's designed to model, that co- it's designed to model the covenant commitment that Jesus has for his church. It designs to model the love that heaven has for earth and the way that the two will come together, and we'll see this in Revelation chapter 20, heaven and earth will come together and be married. There will be a marriage supper at the end. When you try to take sex and you try to pull it out of covenant commitment, a commitment before God and for other people, it is extremely damaging. Now I could give you a big talk here, I don't have time to give you a big talk, about how the sexual revolution is responsible for a lot of us being depressed and lonely, responsible for a lot of dissociation problems that we have in our culture, responsible for a lot of um, um, problems that people have psychologically, people have with building relationship. Sex, according to the sexual revolution, is about you. It's something that you are owed. It's something that you need, and you have a right to satisfy. And do you see what it's done? It's become about you. It's a way for you to exercise your individualism. It's, it becomes our identity. We make, if you ask somebody, you know, we actually use words like homosexual and heterosexual to describe our own identities. And, and I think that this is a bad, in other words, this is who I am. I'm heterosexual. That's who I am. That's my identity. And, and I've said, I said this before in here a while back. I'll, I'll say it now again. I said to the men's uh, group this Wednesday, I don't have a right to be heterosexual. What does heterosexual mean? If Aaron Miller says he's heterosexual, what does it mean? It means I'm into women. I don't have a right to be into women. I have to be into Angela. That's who God has called me to be into. My identity can't be what my sexual desires are. My identity has to be in Jesus Christ. My vocation is to love Angela, regardless of how I feel, regardless of you know, whether, uh, whether I'm attracted to women, or I have same-sex attraction, or I struggle with you know, whatever, wherever I am on the spectrum in between, God has called me to be faithful to Angela. I have no right to make my identity my sexuality. Well, that's what the sexual revolution has done to us. It's turned us into sexual objects. And in turn, we turn each other into sexual objects. I could give you a big speech about how this is damaging and what this is doing. 
What I'm going to do this morning is to say two things. One is sex is beautiful. It's amazing. It's one of the best gifts God has given his people. But he has a plan for how it's supposed to work. And the second thing I'm going to say is this. People, it's time to repent. It's time to stop. It's time to put away the porn. It's time to put away the lust. It's the time to start being sexual faithful, sexually faithful to your spouse or to your future spouse, or if you're single, to be sexually faithful to uh, Jesus, to turn over your body, your mind, your soul, and your heart to Jesus, which all of us should do anyway. So call to repentance. And this is what John says. Repent. Turn away from that. Now, the sexual revolution is going to tell you you can't. You can't stop. You have to have sex. And John's going to say, no, you don't have to have anything. You don't have to have food. All you have to have is Jesus. It's time to repent. The church is attacked from the inside by her sexual sin. Well, this is, this is kind of a liberal church tendency is to say, Jesus loves you. Whoever you want to have sex with, it's up to you. you, you have to, God wants you to be happy. You have to be free to experience and to celebrate who you are. That's a liberal church tendency. Let's talk about a conservative church tendency back in verses two through five. I know your works, uh, John says to the church at Ephesus, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary but I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you fall and repent and do works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Well, who is this church? Do you guys recognize this church? Here's a church that's incredibly orthodox. They, knew, they know who the false apostles are and they know who the fa- false apostles aren't. They're very, very, very diligent to protect the doctrinal boundaries, to say this is true and this is false. Truth is allowed, falsehood is gonna be denied. They're very diligent to do this. They're very willing to be steadfast in the face of persecution. And yet, they lack love. They don't lack love. They don't have love. Who is this church? Uh, I don't know if you recognize the LCMS in this description, but I certainly do. We're very, very proud of our doctrinal purity, of the fact that we know right from wrong and we have true doctrine, and yet we've lost our first love. We don't love God like we should. And we're sort of proud of it, too. We're sort of proud of it. Like, love would be bad. I don't want to have emotions. Emotions might be sneaking into, like, work, sanctification by works. Just cold, hard facts. That's what we need. That's what God wants from us. But what does God say? I'm going to come and I'm going to take the lampstand away from you if you don't repent. He says the same thing to the people who sin sexually in the church as he does to the people who sin emotionally in the church. He say, I give God my brain, but I'm not going to give God my emotions or my actions. Some of us are saying, well, how do I love God? I don't even feel like loving God, you know, except maybe kind of in a surface way. How do, well, John says it's actions here. Uh, verse five, remember therefore from where you've fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. Go back to the works of love. John knows, like C.S. Lewis knows, like we as a romantic uh, postmodernists don't know, that you act loving first, and then the feelings will follow. You don't feel loving so that the acts follow. You act loving. Well, how do you act loving? What if, what if God came to me and said, Aaron, you're a good dad. You work hard. You provide financially for your family. You protect your family. But you don't love your kids like I should. And what if I said, well, I don't even know how to love my kids. What do I do? And he said, well, do the works of love that you did at first. And I, what's the works of loving my kid? Well, one of the basics would just be hanging out with them. 
Like, I, you, maybe you don't feel this way about my kids. I feel this way about my kids. Like, to be around them is to love them. Like, to hang out with them is to be constantly amazed at the human beings that they are. If I decide, though, that I don't really need to be around my kids, I make money, I pay for their school bills, I pay for their clothing, I protect them, that I'm not loving them. And that's what we've become as the LCMS. We've become like people who don't want relationship, we just want the facts, we don't want connection with God or with each other. And as a result, we've fallen out of love with God and with each other. So one of the questions here is, what does he mean by love? Love who? Well, it's either God or fellow brothers and sisters in Christ or other people. And actually, 1 John 4, 20, 21, it's the same thing. John says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has not seen, who he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from God, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Love for God, love for each other is the same thing. And what God is doing is he's coming to the conservative church and he's saying, I'm going to take your lampstand away if you do not love me. Well, you shouldn't do that, God. We're doctrinally pure. We have all, we have all of our doctrines lined up perfectly. And he's going to say, I want you. I'm, I'm glad he praises them for this, but I want you. I want you. I don't want, I'm not an accountant. I don't need you to give me good books. I want a relationship with you. So the church attacked from the inside, attacked from the outside. This church looks very familiar to me. Church, a church that caves in, uh, uh, you know, all these churches do. In fact, there's, there's bits and pieces of each one of these churches here in this room amongst us, amongst me. I'm very, very proud of my theological degrees. I'm also very prone to sexual sin. And those two things kind of mix up syncretistically. I'm like, yeah, I like Jesus. I like Holy Communion. I also like Baal too. But I also like being a smart guy. I like that Christianity makes, it's a, it's a, provides a platform for me. People pay me to get up here and try and sound like I'm smart. I like that too. I've turned this into like, what they are here. And what God is calling me to is repentance. That's what's wrong with the church. So anyway, that's a call to repentance. That's the law portion of the sermon. Uh, we must repent. Wherever you find yourself in, this, in, in the description that John gives us here, repent. Now, what's right with the church? Quite simply, what's right with the church is Jesus. Verse three, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You are bearing up for my name's sake. What they have is Jesus. They, they, they have cold hearts. They've given themselves, they, they've turned away from their first love. But what they still have is Jesus. That's what they still have. Now, so there's space to repent. There's space to repent and return to their first love because whatever's wrong with them, they've got Jesus. They have the name of Jesus in their midst. Verse 10, this is to the church at Smyrna. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. What does he mean, be faithful? He doesn't mean like muster up all your strength and like uh, be true to me. He means you have Jesus, just keep believing in Jesus. Whatever else is wrong with you, you can repent of those things, but keep believing in Jesus. Verse 13 as well, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. You have me, hold on to me. Also the intros to each one of these sections begins with the description of Jesus. And each one, each one of these you know, he's got stuff to criticize in all of these churches, but he starts off by saying, Jesus belongs to you. Verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Go back to chapter one, that's Jesus talking. Verse eight, church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, the crucified and risen Jesus belongs to you. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, this is Jesus, the word of God comes from his mouth. Verse 18, 
And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. All of these, in, all, in, in every one of these instances where the church is described in her weakness and her frailty, she's also described as having Jesus. Jesus belongs to her. It is not a guarantee. He will come and take the lampstand away if they don't repent. But he is offering the gift of repentance. Turn to him because he belongs to you. Hold faithful, stay faithful to Jesus. Now, last thing I want to point out here and then we'll be done. First of all, Jesus wins. I mean, this, this, I'm just going to say this and, and then we'll be done. Jesus wins. Look at verse 26. The one who conquers, this is the very last name. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Remember the goal of Revelation, like the goal of the whole Bible, is not God's plan to get you to heaven someday. It is God's plan to put you in charge of all the nations. God wants you guys to be kings and queens, priests to him over the entire universe. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as, with an earth, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Now, what does that mean? Why is he bringing up like smashing pottery in pieces? You gotta go back to the Psalm reading. Look in your bulletins at Psalm chapter two. This, this, Psalm two. This is a reference to Psalm two where... Uh, uh, well, actually, just look at Psalm 2 with me really quick. Psalm 2 is, uh, starts off, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. You'll see how this, this, uh, this matches up with, with Revelation's message. All the political leaders of the world are opposed, against, are opposed to Yahweh. And they want to, throw, they want to overthrow him because they want to be God. They want to be in charge. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against two people. The Lord, Yahweh, and his anointed. And the, the, the Hebrew word behind anointed is Messiah, the Messiah. So there's two people here. There's the Lord, and then there's the anointed one. Here in Psalm 2, it's David. But you know this is going to get applied to Jesus. Interestingly enough, we're celebrating Jesus' baptism today. The words from Jesus' baptism are quoted here because Jesus is the true Messiah. Here's what the nations say about, about uh, Yahweh and the Messiah. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then Yahweh will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So here's what he says. Is you guys all think that you're in charge. Political leaders, cultural leaders, entertainment leaders, economic leaders, you think that you're in charge of everything. I've already set my king on my holy hill. I've already set my Messiah there. And then the Messiah says this. David says this. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now you know that's, that's language from Jesus' baptism. It's David talking, but it's actually about Jesus. Jesus is the one true Messiah who now rules and reigns over all the nations. And so God says to Jesus the Messiah, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them. Here's what John quotes in John chapter two. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, now here's a message of warning to the political leaders of the world. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry. Um, submit yourself to the Messiah, Jesus, lest he be angry and blow you up and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is, this is your destiny. Jesus' destiny is to rule and reign over all the nations. It doesn't look like it. It looks like the economic system has you under its thumb. It looks like there's no way. I mean, the cultural system, the entertainment system is pumping the sexual revolution into you. How can you escape that? How can you fight against that? 
The religious system is opposed to you. The entire world system is opposed to you. We're going to go through Revelation, and you're going to see that actually Jesus is ruling and reigning over all those people. And he's got them lined up, and he's going to blow them up. And so hold fast to him. Hold fast to the Jesus who is the true king of the universe. Let's pray. God, thank you for being a good God and for loving us. Thank you for sending your son to die and rise from the dead in order to rule and reign over all things. Help us to submit to him. Help us to be willing, Father, because he is our Lord and Savior, to repent of the sins that we've committed, whatever they might be. Help us to be faithful members of your, uh, of your body, your church, and to turn us into conquerors through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Father, thank you for being such a good God and for loving us. We confess that all of us in this room are sexually immoral. None of us have been faithful to Jesus' command in Matthew 5 to not even look on another person with lust or not even to desire to be separated from our spouse. None of us have been faithful to this. None of us have been guiltless from thinking that money or power are going to satisfy us and to make us happy. And we've all worshiped at false altars. And we thank you so much for providing forgiveness, for promising forgiveness. And we ask you to forgive us of those sins and to continue because we're, you know how weak we are and frail. And as we come to your rail here, God, give us the promise physically in the bread and wine, in, in, your, in your son's body and blood, give us this promise that for all of our sins, for all of our caving in to the cultural systems that you do love us and forgive us and that you still are our Savior and that you are our, and your Son is our Jesus. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we thank and praise you for 
um, in spite of the weakness of St. James Lutheran Church, uh, all the work that you're doing here and that we trust you're doing here in our community through us and through, uh, through uh, us as servants of this community. And I thank you for the people you've raised up in our church to, um, to love and serve you by loving and serving us. And I think especially today of um, the Altar Guild and all the work they've done. Uh, they're always super busy uh, between Thanksgiving and the turn of the year. And um, it seems like they've been up here a lot um, changing paraments and getting things prepared and changing decorations. And thank you for that important work that you've called them to, to help serve us by preparing uh, the bread and wine, which uh, you're going to join yourself to and serve us with yourself. And so we thank you for them. We also pray, uh, pray this morning for um, our missionaries, and especially this morning for Josh and Coco Lang in China, and that you would be with their ministry there, and that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on them so that uh, their message, the message of their family, the message of their uh, Christian community there would sound forth clearly in that context, and that your, uh, your gospel would be made known, and that people would come to see your son Jesus as Lord, Lord in your mercy. Father, we pray for all those who are grieving this morning and for uh, uh, struggling with questions of where you're at and hopelessness. And um, I just pray that you would give hope and meaning and comfort to, to um, all of us, especially I pray that you would give hope and meaning and comfort to the family of Hope Tyson Claxton, who passed away this week, who had um, a lot of co-workers here and a lot of uh, former students and even maybe some current students. And I just pray that you would give that family peace and uh, give the Metro East Lutheran High School family peace, knowing that, uh, again, in spite of the weakness of the church and in spite of the frailty of our human bodies and the inevitability of our sickness and death, that we do confess that you are the Lord of the universe, that you have sent your Son to die and rise from the dead, and that ultimately is our reality. And we grasp and hold on to that because that's your promise. Lord, in your mercy. We can only pray these things because you are a good God who loves us, and we know that you are a, a, a sovereign, victorious God. Open our eyes to, to your armies surrounding this place. Help us to see the victory that you have in store for your people. Help us to see into the past and the victory that you've won by sending your Son to die and rise for us and to ascend for us. And help us to always be bold to come into your throne room as your children to ask you these requests, which we can only pray in your Son's name. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. For at his baptism, your voice from heaven revealed him as your beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit descended on him, confirming him to be the Christ. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. Now let's pray in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Bless the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Look around. Find somebody close to you or far away from you that you don't recognize or you do recognize but haven't talked to in a while. Build that relationship. Go in peace.